Shri Shri Radha Krishna Govopinath Shaima Kunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhan Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Navajit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Maya Juruna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Rindi Ki Jai Gaur Premananda all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Namo Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vinanta Swami Nitinamani. Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Patani Nivasesa Sinavati Paskachade Satarani. Vande Ham Shri Guru Shri Utah Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Stam Sajivam Sadvaitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Panchakapa Chubascha Kipasindavyevata Patitanam Pavanavya Vaishnavyavinamana Maha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya March 17, 2021, in Hawaii, over the internet, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 4, Chapter 24, chanting the song sung by Lord Shiva, Text 71. Yoga Desham Upadsadya Dharayanta Munivrata Samahita Dhyā Sarva Etarabhya Satadrittaha Yoga Adesham This instruction of Bhakti Yoga Upasadhyā Constantly reading. Constantly reading. And taking within the heart. Munivrataha. Just take the vow of the great sages, the vow of silence. Samahita. Samahita. Always fixed in the mind. Always fixed in the mind. Diya. Diya. With intelligence. Sarve. All of you. Etat. This. Abhyasataha. Practice. Adritaha. With great reverence. Great reverence. Muted. Unmuted. Srila Prabhupada's translation. My dear princes, this is Lord Shiva speaking. 
In the form of a prayer, I have delineated the yoga system of chanting the holy name. All of you should take this important stotra within your minds and promise to keep it in order to become great sages. By acting silently like a great sage and by giving attention and reverence, you should practice this method. Srila Prabhupada's purport. In the Hatha Yoga system, one has to practice bodily exercises, dana, dharana, asana, meditation, etc. One also has to sit in one place in a particular posture and concentrate his gaze on the tip of the nose. There are so many rules and regulations for the Hatha Yoga system that it is practically impossible to perform it in this age. The alternative system of Bhakti Yoga is very easy, not only in this age, but in others as well. For this yoga system was advocated long ago by Lord Shiva when he advised the princes, the sons of Maharaj Prachinibharishat. The Bhakti Yoga system is not newly introduced. For even 5,000 years ago, Lord Krishna recommended this Bhakti Yoga as the topmost yoga. As Krishna tells Arjuna in Bhagavad Gita 647, Of all yogis, he who always abides in me in great faith, worshipping me in transcendental loving service, is most intimately united with me in yoga and is the highest of all. The topmost yogi is he who constantly thinks of Krishna within himself and chants the glories of the Lord. In other words, the system of bhakti yoga has been existing from time immemorial and is now continuing this Krishna consciousness movement. The word munivrataha is significant in this regard because those who are interested in advancing in spiritual life must be silent. Silence means talking only of Krishna kata. This is the silence of Maharaj Ambarisha. Savaimana Krishna padara vindayo vachamsi vaikunta gunar nivarnane. King Ambarisha always fixed his mind on the lotus feet of the Lord and talked of him only. Srimad Bhagavatam 9.4.18 We should also take this opportunity in life to become as good as a great saint simply by not talking unnecessarily with unwanted persons. <laughs> we should either talk of Krishna or Chantari Krishna undeviatingly. This is called munivrata. The intelligence must be very sharp. Samahita diyaha and should always be acting in Krishna consciousness. The words etad abhyasatadritaha indicate that if one takes these instructions from a spiritual master with great reverence, adrita, and practices them accordingly, he will find this bhakti yoga process to be very, very easy. Yoga desham upadsadya darayanto munivrataha Samahita dhyā sarva etarabhyā My dear princes, in the form of a prayer, I have delineated the yoga system of chanting the holy name. All of you should take this important stotra within your minds and promise to keep it in order to become great sages. By acting silently like a great sage and by giving attention and reverence, you should practice this method. So here, Lord Shiva is saying that his the prayer that he gave the princes to recite to Lord Vishnu is an instruction in yoga, which Prabhupada is, uh, as he often does, translating as bhakti yoga, that it could be taken, it's just, Lord Shiva's just using the word yoga, and yoga, when it's used on its own, often refers to what Prabhupada's calling here, hatha yoga, uh, what's also called astanga yoga, raj yoga, dhyana yoga, uh, there's different names 
this the, basically the yoga system that's outlined in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, and then there's the uh, yoga sutras and things of that nature. Uh, but Srila Prabhupada here is identifying the yoga that Lord Shiva is teaching as bhakti yoga. Why? Because if we look at the content of the prayers, the upadesham, the adesham, the instruction that's embodied in these prayers, the yoga instruction, we'll find that it is a yoga instruction for particularly bhakti yoga, not, uh, not yoga in terms of astanga yoga and not even karma yoga or gyan yoga. Uh, but bhakti yoga. Now it's interesting though that we have here some of the terms that are normally associated with astanga yoga like dharana and dhyaya uh, and also this concept of munivrata which is, is very interesting. So we're going to look at these different concepts of bhakti yoga because Srila Prabhupada is saying at the end of this purport something which I think many of us uh, would be a little say confused by or we might even argue with Srila Prabhupada about it, which Srila Prabhupada says right at the end of this purport. Hey, if we look at this, what does he say here? To find this bhakti yoga process to be very, very easy. Not just easy, but very easy. And not just very easy, but very, very easy. <laughs> and I think a lot of us would say, hmm, I don't know if I find this bhakti yoga process to be very, very easy. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, here we're looking at what's at the heart of the bhakti yoga process, but uh, explained in terms, again, that are usually associated with hatha yoga, or ultimately called astanga yoga, or dhyan yoga, which is, of course, one part of uh, one of the eight parts, or raj yoga, or other things like that. You know, what, what people think of when they think of yoga, they might think of just the asanas, or they might think of meditation, and of course, the concept of meditation as a form of enlightenment and as a form of happiness has become very popular in the world today. So let's look at these different aspects of this verse that Srila Prabhupada focuses on, how they relate to bhakti yoga and how practicing them in bhakti yoga can in fact make bhakti yoga very, very easy. So we're going to look at dharana, uh, we're going to look at uh, diya, we're going to look at Munivrataha, and we're going to look at Abhyasata. So let's look first at Dharana. So I'm sure you're all familiar with this word Dharana. We have Giri Dari. So Giri means a hill, and Dari means one who holds. The Krishna is called Giri Dari. And Lord Balaram is called Haladhara. Hala means the plow, Dada means to hold. He's holding the plow. And Dadani is a name for the earth. It's another name for Bhumi Devi, who holds all of us. <laughs> She's holding all of us uh, quite well, in fact. And uh, Dadani, like that, like a mother holding, you know, you can think of one of the main attributes of a mother. She's holding the baby in her womb. Right? And she's holding the baby to her breast and she's carrying the baby around in various ways. In many cultures, babies are carried on the back or on the chest or, or on the hip. Or, you know, babies are often carried, the dharana, to carry, to hold. Mm -hmm. So what is it that we're supposed to be holding in bhakti and how do we hold it in bhakti? 
So in the Astanga Yoga system, Dharana is a form of meditation, where a stage of meditation, where one is holding the mind still. And those who are expert in this kind of meditation say it's a very gentle holding. They compare it to holding of a, a living bird that you don't want to, you're not trying to crush the bird, you're holding it very gently. And if we, we think about how uh, Krishna is holding Govardhan Hill, he's holding it with one little finger. Uh, if we think about how the earth is holding us, uh, we barely are consciously aware of how we're being held. If we think of how the mother is holding the child, it's with a lot of tenderness. Right? The mother is not holding the child in a way that the child's going to be hurt. So in Astanga Yoga, one is holding the mind uh, firmly, but gently. So this holding of the mind in Astanga Yoga, this dharana, is done, uh, although it's done uh, firmly and gently, it's done mechanically. It's a mechanical holding. Hmm? So uh, we often hold things mechanically. I mean, we may hold them carefully because they have some value to us, we don't want to drop them, but the holding of them is more or less mechanical. However, the holding of the baby by the mother is done not just mechanically, but also because the mother has a lot of attachment to the child. And I suppose we can have this also with some things. You know, we could be holding our phone very carefully as we're walking over some wet, rocky terrain because we really care about our phone and therefore we don't want it to get dropped and broken. Yes, so there's some sort of attachment, there's some sort of affection. In the Astanga Yoga system, it's, there's no attachment and affection. In fact, there's this, this neutral disinterest. But in Bhakti Yoga, one is holding with um, attraction and some affection. My parta, my shakta, manaparta, my shakta. My to me, a shakta with attachment. Uh, mana, the mind, parta o arjuna, my shakta mana parta. One should hold on to me with attachment. One fixes the mind on me with attachment. So this holding of Krishna, it says, I believe in the second canto, that the holy name of the Lord, I mean, it's interesting that Prabhupada puts in this, his translation, <laughs> delineated the yoga system of chanting the holy name, which of course is not actually in this verse, that it says in, earlier in the Bhagavatam that the holy name sits on the lotus of the heart of the lotus of the loving relationship in the heart. So the way that we're holding, well, first of all, what we're holding, we're holding the Lord. We're holding the Lord. The Lord's already in the heart, but we're holding the Lord in the heart, and we're holding the Lord on the lotus of our relationship of love, and we're holding him with affection. And we know how to do this, Prabhupada giving a class on that verse from the 7th chapter, Bhagavad Gita in Sanan, India, one of my favorite classes, says that we already know how to hold something in our mind and in our consciousness through attachment. As I was saying, perhaps we've done that with our phone, <laughs> which is just a, an ordinary object that could be replaced. I mean, at some expense and some trouble, but still it could be replaced. You could buy a new phone and you set it up and so forth. right? Uh, so even we're holding our phone with some respect. What to speak if we're holding a living being that cannot be replaced? <laughs> you cannot, you know, 
I guess you can buy a new dog or something, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> Sometimes rich people clone their dying dogs. But, you know, you, you're not just going to replace your spouse or your, your child. I mean, even if you get another child after a child dies or you marry again after a spouse dies or divorces you, it's not the same. You, you, can't, you can't replace a, a living being. And so we have some attachment uh, to living beings greater than our attachment to some inanimate object. Yes, because they're very valuable. They can't be replaced. Now, so if we're holding on to some living being to whom we have attachment, it's we're holding on with attachment. We don't want to let go, and yet there's tenderness. There's a softness in our holding. So this is the way in Bhakti Yoga we hold on to the holy name. Like Prabhupada wrote this letter that when chanting Hare Krishna, we should feel the presence of Krishna. And in feeling the presence of Krishna, Prabhupada said we could remember, for example, his talks to Arjuna, the Bhagavad Gita. So in Bhakti Yoga, whatever we're doing, we're holding on to Krishna. And we're holding on to Krishna with affection and remembrance. And we're able to hold on to Krishna because we have some attachment. We have some investment, like the residents of Vrindavan when they were running to the Kaliya Lake, right? It said that they had invested, Prabhupada said they had invested everything in Krishna, right? We're, we hold on to our phone because we have some investment in our phone. And we hold on to our the, uh, the persons we love because we have some investment in them, right? So what to speak of Krishna? Uh, all these other things, our objects, our loved ones, they're all tiny, tiny parts of Krishna. And as very nicely explained by Sukadeva Goswami Tamara Purkit in regard to Lord Brahma stealing the boys and calves, that the reason we love anything and everyone is because it's part of Krishna. So the same way that we have a sense of investment in some object, that we have a sense of investment in another living being, we can have that same sense of, of attachment and investment in Krishna. And that is bhakti. In Astanga Yoga, that's done more mechanically. It's done, and the human body is designed mechanically to do that. In Jnana Yoga, it's done philosophically. In Karma Yoga, it's done through detached work. But in Bhakti Yoga, it's done through affection. And one reason that's easy is that we know how to do that. Everyone knows how to do that. You know, a, a little tiny baby knows how to hold on to its mother with affection or knows how to hold on to some toy with affection. It's not something, you don't have to teach an infant to do that. It's there. It's there even in other species. Yes, the mother cat is holding on to the baby cats with affection. So, because it, it doesn't need to be taught, simply the object needs to be changed. Therefore, we can say that this kind of dharana is very, very easy. And then we have this word, dia. So, diaha, of course, is very related to the word dimahi which is in the first verse of the Srimad Bhagavatam. And it also is in, of course, the Gayatri Mantra. So to meditate on or hear with intelligence. Uh, so the holding is, is, is particularly emotional. And Dia is, it's also emotional, but it's intellectual here, promising with intelligence. So that one is, is holding Krishna also philosophically. Just like we notice that in all of the prayers to Krishna, even by intimate associates, they will pray to him philosophically. 
And so much of these prayers of Lord Shiva are also very philosophical. I'm just about to be teaching uh, Canto 1, Chapter 6 and 7. And in Chapter 7, Arjuna is confronted with the Brahmastra of Asvatthama. And Asvatthama, to protect his life, shot out a Brahmastra that he didn't know how to withdraw. Uh, Many times when people are fearful or angry, uh, they shoot out their little Brahmastras that they don't know how to withdraw. (laughs) You know, people, when they're very fearful or angry, they, they say things that they shouldn't say, that are going to harm others, and they don't know how to take them back. Uh, they do things, they, they do something that creates some sort of finality, that creates some kind of harm, and they, they don't know how to take back their action. That's quite common that people do that sort of thing when they're very fearful. Uh, so Arjuna wanted to know how to counteract this Brahmastra, and of course the way he did it was by sending out his own Brahmastra and then withdrawing them and amalgamating them, and then when he withdrew his Brahmastra, it withdrew Asvatamas as well. But before he asked Krishna, how do I deal with this weapon, with this Brahmastra, he glorifies Krishna. And Prabhupada notes there, as he does in other places, that before asking for something, one glorifies the Lord. Also, sometimes it's noted that after glorifying the Lord, one should ask for something. <laughs> uh, and that's true even when we're chanting Hare Krishna that the Lord will say, well, what do you want? You're calling me, you're calling me, what do you want? You know, like sometimes a person calls us and we say, what do you want? Oh, I called you by mistake. I I didn't want anything. Yes, I I get uh, many days, most days, I get messages uh, on on, uh, chat platforms, mostly Messenger, from people I don't really know who are just saying like, hi, (laughs) you know, hi, hello. Or even just Hare Krishna, and I always ignore it. It's like, if, if I don't know what you want, why should I answer you? Uh, just just saying hi. Uh, so it's both the etiquette to glorify the Lord before asking for something and to ask for something after glorifying the Lord. But one should be fixed in Krishna philosophically. Now one should say, well, I mean, well, you know, are the residents of Vrindavan fixed in Krishna philosophically? And the answer is yes. Of course, they're not always acting on that platform, but sometimes... When Mother Yasoda sees the universal form, for example, she starts waxing very philosophical. When the gopis are searching for Krishna in the forest, also they speak very high philosophy. And we know that the residents of Vrindavan, they also have expansions in Mahaprabhu's Leela, right? So we're coming up to Gorpurnima, and these associates of Lord Chaitanya, they are residents of Vrindavan. And as the associate of Lord Chaitanya, they're great philosophers. So in Krishna Leela, they may be, you know, some 12-year-old Manjuri Gopi who's stringing garlands all day and is just saying, oh, what did Krishna say to Radharani? And then in Mahaprabhu's Leela, they're writing all these books of philosophy. So one should also be fixed, one's intelligence should be fixed in Krishna philosophically. And... I mean, I think that's true in any relationship. I think in any relationship we have with another living being, uh, at least another human being, oh, we would like that human being to relate to us not just emotionally, but also uh, mentally and intellectually. <laughs> we want there to be some connection. So this is very easy to do in bhakti yoga. So in jnana yoga, this may be somewhat difficult. But uh, because one has to be very much a philosopher in Gyan Yoga. But in Bhakti Yoga, the philosophy is very simple. I mean, it's, it's very deep and it's very complex. If you are a great philosopher, 
you will find no dearth of, of food for your philosophical mind in bhakti yoga. But also it's very simple. You know, even if somebody is not very philosophically inclined or very intellectual, I mean, even I've taught Krishna conscious philosophy to two, three, four-year-old children, and they're able to grasp the main parts of it because it's wonderful <laughs> just that their God is a person, that we're all part of God, that we're a soul, that we're not this body. I mean, these... the. Uh, the modes of material nature, getting out of the modes of material nature. The basic aspects of our philosophy are very wonderful, but they're also a way to meditate on Krishna. We can meditate on Krishna's philosophy. I find it fascinating, because Prabhupada's talking about chanting the holy name in this verse, that there's a number of instances where Srila Prabhupada talks about meditating on Bhagavad Gita while chanting Hare Krishna. I, I just find that fascinating. And... You know, he he doesn't say you have to do that. Sometimes he'll say you can meditate on Krishna's instructions to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita, or you can meditate on how Krishna's killing the demons and the cowherd boys are encouraging him with claps. <laughs> uh, sometimes he'll say you can meditate on the form of the deity. But I do find that interesting, that Srila Prabhupada will say also, while chanting Hare Krishna, we can meditate on Krishna's instructions in the Bhagavad Gita. And certainly meditating on the philosophy of Krishna consciousness and using our intelligence in Krishna consciousness is a very, very easy way to connect with Krishna. The philosophy is, is simple and straightforward and it's all-encompassing. And I give the examples all the time because it's something that's very dear to my heart of meditating on the Lord in the light of the sun, I'm meditating on the Lord in the taste of water, meditating that the trees are the hairs on the bodies of the Lord. So that's a dia. That's an intelligence platform by which we are connecting. Yoga means to connect. By which we're connecting with the Lord. Now, it's fascinating to me that Lord Shiva uses the words munivrata, which Srila Prabhupada then translates as a vow of silence. It reminds me of the um, uh, Dridavrataha. And Dridavrataha means often the great vow. Uh, of course, Drida means also again to hold. And that's usually translated as celibacy. And here, Munivrataha, the vow of the Munis, is translated as silence. So we can understand these are what we call idioms. Every language has as idioms. Yes, I remember Gopi Prananapu giving a class on a verse once where he said uh, that the cave, to keep the Lord in the cave, is an idiom for the heart. Yes? So, as I said, every language has these idioms. I remember whenever we were going to go travel somewhere, my father would say, okay, let's hit the road. And that doesn't mean we're going to go outside and start banging our fists on the, on the street. Or he'd say, okay, let's boogie. A boogie is a kind of dance. And he didn't mean we were going to dance. He meant, let's go somewhere. <laughs> uh, so you have these sort of, of idioms. And here you have this idiom that the munivrata, the vow of munis, is to keep silence. So here Shiva Prabhupada is talking about what does it mean to keep silence. And he gives the example, interestingly enough, of Maharaj Ambarish. Now Maharaj Ambarish was a king. I don't think you can be a king and literally not speak. It, it just wouldn't work. How are you going to rule your kingdom? And he was a very good king without speaking. So what do we, what do we mean by that? 
uh, and Srila Prabhupada, right, uh, that, that King Abhirish only talked of Krishna. Now, even if we're, if we're going to take that literally, in, in the most literal sense, it's impossible. How are you going to be a king and only talk of Krishna? You know, a king has to talk about, like our, our, our president of the United States, whoever he may be, what has he got to talk about? He's, he's got to talk about what we're going to do with the roads, you know, what they call the infrastructure, and we're going to, he's going to talk about what to do about people in poverty and what to do about crime and what to do about immigration and what to do about health care, right? I mean, that's, that's what he's got to talk about. He's got to talk about it to the public. He's got to talk about it to the other ministers and the secretaries and the legislature. That's what he's got to, that's his job. <laughs> he's got to talk about those things. That's, that's what government does. So Abhirish Maharaj must have, have had to speak about the military and the police force and making sure the citizens had clean water and healthy food and good education and good roads and you know all these things that our modern politicians talk about, he would have had to talk about too. So why would we say that he only talked of Krishna? Interesting. And then Srila Prabhupada says, that we should not talk unnecessarily with unwanted persons. We should either talk of Krishna or chant Hare Krishna undeviatingly. Uh, so let's look at each of these in turn. So first of all, that Prabhupada's giving the example of a of a of a very a person of very responsible, far-reaching responsibility, worldly position, as somebody who was keeping silence. And I'm thinking about how Mahaprabhu didn't want to meet with King Prataparudra, who was a great devotee, because he would he considered that at least externally he was a worldly person. And in fact, we have in the Bhagavatam story after story after story of these kings who at a certain point, as soon as they have a successor, even if they are young, they don't necessarily wait till they're old. As soon as they have a good successor... They renounced the kingdom, or Gopal Kumar, who kept taking on administrative positions in service. And then each one of them he would jettison, you know, each one of them he would say, oh, this is an impediment to my chanting. And he would give it up, and then he would take another one who was really interested. You know, he became a king on the earth. Uh, he became, I think, twice a king on the earth. And he became uh, Lord Indra, he became Lord Burma, and he did it for service. And then he would say, oh, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> it's interfering with my mantra. So what do we mean? Because the concept of devotees working in the world is one of the main concepts of Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam. The whole concept of Varnashram is that those in the Grahasta Ashram engage in the various Varnas and work in the world. Well, you have to talk about so many things. I was just reading how Dronacharya was a Brahmana, even though he was teaching the military art. So he's not just going to be chanting Hare Krishna. He's going to be saying, hold the bow like this, and here's how you shoot your Brahmastra, and so many things. And that, what, what it means is, mam anusram yujitcha. That even though you're talking about so many things, at least internally you always see the relationship with Krishna. And whenever appropriate, you make that relationship visible in your language. Like I, I, one of my favorite verses is about Bhishma leaving his body. That man who fought on thousands of battlefields with thousands of men and spoke on thousands of subjects with thousands of meaning stopped speaking and fixed his wide open eyes on the personality of God and who was standing before him. 
uh, with glittering garments. I'm sure I'm not getting that exactly right. But he spoke on thousands of subjects with thousands of meanings. And he became silent at the very, literally silent at the very end of his life. So even though he fought, fought on thousands of battlefields with thousands of men and spoke on thousands of subjects with thousands of meanings, it was always connected with Krishna. The Bhagavatam itself is like that. The Bhagavatam itself spans a wide range of subject matter. That's why devotees like Aruda could develop a whole elementary curriculum based on the Bhagavatam. Srila Prabhupada spoke on a wide range of, of topics, uh, but always it was a connection with Krishna. So this only talking about Krishna, Krishna Kata's Prabhupada says here, uh, does not necessarily mean that one is only talking about Namguna Rupalila in the transcendent sense. It also means that one can be talking about Krishna's business in this world and seeing everything we do as Krishna's business, but not talking unnecessarily with unwanted persons. And wow, what a time, energy, and anxiety saver that is. So even in our societies of devotees, there are persons who will drag us down into various unwanted conversations. Did you know what this person did? And you know what? I heard that person. I don't know if it's true, but maybe it's true. And you know, if it's true, then maybe this. And, and people just gossiping and, and fault finding. And there's, there seems to be uh, constantly, <laughs> you know, it's exacerbated a little bit, we could say, by the internet. But it was going on before that. It, it's uh, these things were going on for millions of years, internet or no internet, uh, that, that there are people who are talking about unnecessary things, offensive things, uh, time wasters, energy wasters, and energy draggers down. <laughs> and the best thing to do with such people is silence. And sometimes that's really hard. The other day somebody posted something on social media uh, accusing a good friend of mine, uh, unjustly accusing a good friend of mine. And, you know, I was thinking, okay, it's the Vaishnava principle, you have to defend devotees. And then I'm like, you know, Amila, there's no way this person is going to listen to anything you say. And there's no way that the people who listen to this person are going to listen to anything you say. And if you jump in to defend this devotee, all you're going to do is bring it, bring the topic to the attention of more people and more people will jump in and get involved, and more people will talk about it. <laughs> Better to just be silent. Better to just walk away and not, you know, just not hear it, not see it. Just have that silence. And this undeviatingly, uh, to be absorbed in, in, in sound, undeviating sound related to Krishna. So this concept... Uh, this concept is, of course, discussed. We have this class we give called Liberation Through Sound about the different levels of the voice, the paravak, the voice of the soul, the pasyantivak, the voice of the intelligence, uh, the majumavak, the voice of the mind, and the vaikarivak, the voice of the tongue. And that chanting has to get to the level of the paravak. So there's, of course, a very famous book of Orthodox Christianity, of the way of the pilgrim, of... Uh, a man who learns to do unceasing prayer by taking the prayer from the lips to the mind to the heart and having the heart constantly uh, be chanting prayer. So we should be at that point. We should get to that point that the Hare Krishna mantra or some prayer or some meditation on the Lord is constantly going in our heart, in our mind. And we say, how is that possible? And I'd say, well, you know, many of us are able to listen to music while we're doing other things. It happens all the time. You know, someone to go to a restaurant, they're playing music and people are talking at the same time. 
So the Hare Krishna mantra can be going on there all of the time in our consciousness. And that is real silence. Mm-hmm. That everything, that all of our inner thoughts and our external voiced uh, thoughts be the Maha Mantra or some connection with the Lord. And then we have another, uh, Srila Prabhupada doesn't pick up on this in the purport, uh, but it's in the verse, picks up on all of those. And we have this Abhyasita practice. So Krishna describes Abhyas Yoga in the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, text 9. And he gives Abhyas Yoga as what one should do if one is not able to start out being just spontaneously attracted to Krishna. If one's not able to be at the uh, Raga platform immediately, then one practices Vaidhi. One practices according to the rules and one, one practices. What? Practices Bhakti. And practice of Bhakti is... It's a little odd. I mean, if you're not proficient in an instrument, we have a devotee who just moved into our community here, uh, born in the movement, and he's playing the violin. So he's learning to play the violin. He's starting to play the violin sometimes uh, for the kirtans, but he's also practicing. And so he'll walk around the temple property playing his violin because he's practicing. Now, he's already reasonably good at playing the violin, so his practice is somewhat pleasing. But if you are learning to play an instrument, the first thing you do is practice. I remember when I was a kid getting piano lessons, and you're practicing. Or my daughter has taught Bart and Jim dance for decades, and, you know, the beginning students, and they're practicing. And uh, practice is awkward. Practice is awkward. I finished a book within the last few years called Peak about how one can become expert in any art through practice. Um, one of those books that could have been one-tenth the size and, and still communicated when it needed to communicate. But practice, they're ringing out in that study that practice is not usually pleasurable. I mean, my daughter has found this in teaching dance that most of the students don't want to practice. And the only reason they will practice is if they know there's going to be a performance. So if you say, okay, we're going to have a performance in a month, then they'll practice. But to practice just to be good in the art without some specific performance, they they just won't do it. And even to practice for a performance, I mean, they're going to do a performance for Gore Purnima here, and (laughs) she went out Monday to work with the students. I said, how did it go? And she rolls her eyes and she said, you know, some of them haven't been practicing. Why? Because practice is usually painful. It's usually, there's some sort of drudgery involved with it. There's some kind of a sense of compulsion. Okay, i got to practice. I mean, it's sort of a, what you call it, you know, the the parent having to exhort their child to practice the piano. When I was growing up, everybody took piano lessons. And it was just the thing in my social group that you took piano lessons. I think what it came from was, uh, my, my parents were born in 1913, I think it comes from an age before recorded music, where when people would get together for social events, they'd want to have music, and in order to have music, somebody would have to know how to play instruments, because you'd have live music. And so something that was considered essential, at least for the higher classes of society, was that the children be skilled in playing musical instruments. But you find that, I think, in, in all layers of society. 
that children were expected to learn how to make music. <laughs> uh, now that we have recorded music, uh, it's, it's not so much of a thing, perhaps. But it was, you know, this sort of concept of it's time for your piano lessons and that nobody wants to do their piano lessons. So we could think about practicing for bhakti like that. Okay. I gotta chant my rounds. How many rounds? Are, how many rounds? Are done? How many rounds do I have to do? How many beads have I put down? I practice. Okay, now I gotta read. What page? How many pages have I read? Now I gotta go to Mangalarti. And now I gotta take this exam. And we can go to the practices of bhakti, thinking there are piano lessons that you know our mother is telling us to do. And that we don't really want to do, or ballet lessons, or whatever it was, uh, whatever the, our parents exhorted us to practice. So, practice of bhakti can seem rather odd because bhakti is all about happiness, ananda, right? Kevala ananda kanda, and happiness is all about, and bhakti is all about love. I mean, practicing being joyfully in love. Like Robert said, if you're not joyful, you can't make any advancement. So practicing being joyful, practicing loving. <laughs> but the difficulty is, the irony is, that although love and joy are the natural states of the, soul, of the soul, when we have become contaminated, we do indeed need to practice them. And the analogy I always give is that of the person who's addicted to an intoxicant. So if someone's addicted to, I mean, even something like tobacco or coffee, you know, if someone's addicted to some kind of intoxicant or, you know, stronger things like alcohol or cocaine, so then they have to practice sobriety. And it's, it's a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle. And those of us who've never been addicted to anything, it's not a struggle. To go all day without alcohol, to go all day without a cigarette, or to go all day without coffee, is, it's easy. But once you become addicted to these things it may be very difficult on many levels. It may be difficult because the physical body has become accustomed to a particular chemical thing and the body doesn't know how to behave without it. Like what I've read about heroin is heroin deadens all of the senses. And so when a person stops taking heroin, the senses become hypersensitive. So they notice every sound and, every, you know, and it's to the point that the person can hardly bear it. And they have to get through that stage. So we become addicted to Maya. We become addicted to our false ego, uh, which we may have thought was very pleasurable at first, but which is only causing us difficulty. And giving up our false ego and purposely thinking of Krishna may, may seem very difficult. It, it may seem painful. It may seem like a chore and, and so forth, even though it's our natural state and unfortunately, for a conditioned soul, practicing love and practicing joy has to be done. And Prabhupada will say very clearly that any spiritual system or religious system that says that you can make progress without austerity is cheating. Now, it is possible to attain full Krishna consciousness in a moment without practice. It does happen because it is our natural state. But generally, it doesn't happen. Generally, one has to practice. So there's some degree of... That's why we have this word vrata, the muni vrataha. 
the vrata, the vow. There's some kind, just like Prabhupada had us take vows at initiation, which, by the way, isn't generally done in our sampradaya. But to help us with the practice. You know, just like if if you're going to have piano lessons, so you may, okay, we're going to have piano lessons every day from four to five. Right? And your teacher is going to show up, so you have to be ready, or there's going to be a performance. or there, we, we make some external parameters. Uh, so also we make some external parameters for our bhakti practice. But gradually as we practice, the real nature should awaken. And because really, Rupa Goswami says, it, the bhakti cannot be awakened by practice. The idea of practice is not that the practice itself awakens it. But by practice, we revive our, our innate sense of love. So it's very interesting how Srila Prabhupada is taking all of these aspects that Lordship has given and explaining them in terms of bhakti and then saying that it's very, very easy. That if we do these things in bhakti, that unlike other forms of yoga, it will be very, very easy. Even the practice of bhakti that he's given us, it's not a difficult practice in and of itself. I mean, it's difficult to let go of the false ego. That's a fact. No matter what kind of yoga you're doing, letting go of the false ego is hard because we're attached to it. Like Bhakti Santa said, it's like holding on to a tree. Uh, so that's definitely difficult. But the practice of Bhakti itself is easy, unlike the practices of other yogas, which are difficult, especially in this age, but even in other ages, the pra- as Prabhupada points out, the practice of Bhakti is always the easiest practice at, at any time. So, questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements? Thank you so much for the class. Hi, Krishna. Uh, you mentioned earlier in your class about japa meditation and how Prabhupada said you can meditate on known sources of Bhagavad as you're doing japa. That is a rather unusual comment to make because I put it right down to it. I've never heard such a thing before. There's at least uh, two instances of that. But uh, uh, I guess there's a sense of relief in that for me because like when I'm doing my japa, I've got my laptop on and I've got some nice Krishna Leela on there and I'm just, I'm trying to not pay attention to the Leelas really, but but they're very comforting for me to see them when I'm doing my japa. But, but also there's one other thing and that is that uh, when I'm doing my japa, I don't necessarily always really want to hear Srila Prabhupada's japa in the background because I'm not always in the mood to hear Srila Prabhupada's japa alongside of my own. I would prefer just listening to some nice, uh, quiet meditation music like flute or something like that. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, there's no kind of rule that one has to listen to Srila Prabhupada chanting while you're chanting japa. Uh, here's one letter about Bhagavad Gita. And as far as uh, flute, I don't know. I mean, there's devotees who've made a, a compilation of Prabhupada chanting with flute music in the background. 
And I personally find that super annoying. Like, it drives me crazy. And like, turn it off. <laughs> but definitely there's, there's people who do that and, and seem to find it um, very helpful. So. Yeah, I, I'm definitely one of those persons. I mean, I, I've heard those uh, things with the music in the background as well. And sometimes I find them annoying too. Uh, usually, I mean, I can fluctuate in my mind what kind of mood I'm in. And I think we all go through that experience. But when I want to hear something in the background, usually it's just quiet music without, you know, it's really, you know, leading up to the ambience, you might say, because I'm in a particular mood and my mood is to try and uh, reflect on my own life as a devotee and how, uh, you know, what, why am I doing this japa and, uh, you know, what is the purpose of my life, that kind of, you know, pursuit as I'm doing my japa. Hmm. I mean, I think it's very individual. Uh, there's a, a quote here that I couldn't uh, put into the chat thing. They said it was too long. I tried to cut it down. They said it was too long. Um, so it's in the lecture that I put in the chat. It said, as soon as you chant Hare Krishna, immediately you remember Krishna, Krishna's form, Krishna's fighting, Krishna's sitting on the chariot of Arjuna. If you read Krishna book, always some of his pastimes will immediately come, appear in my brain immediately, as soon as you chant Hare Krishna, that is required, smaranam, automatically, as soon as you chant Hare Krishna. If you mechanically chant, thinking of something nonsense, then it will be useless. It will take time. But if there is immediate remembrance of Krishna, we are hearing about Krishna, so many things, reading about Krishna, why not remembrance? That means inattention, that means deficient in Krishna consciousness. We should immediately, as soon as we chant Hare Krishna, immediately, at least we should remember the picture. That Krishna is so kind that he has become a chariot driver of his devotee Arjuna and he has given his instructions Bhagavad Gita. Or Krishna is playing in the forest along with his cowherd boys, friends, eating very nicely on the bank of the Yamuna. And some demon came and he is killing. And the boys are, I mean to say, encouraging him with claps. This enjoyment is going on. What is the difficulty in remembering Krishna? What for this Krishna book is there? You read it and remember it. That will make you keep you in Krishna consciousness. Um, as far as pictures, I mean, Prabhupada instructed that George Harrison could be looking at pictures of Krishna. Uh, that's in, uh, hopefully the chat will allow me to enter all of that. Nope, it won't. It's too long. <laughs> okay. Um, so, maybe... Thank you very much. There you go. So they let me give a little one. A little one. Okay. I, I hope that's helpful for you. Anybody else? Uh, I have something. Yes. Uh, first of all, I was going to say that I really love the imagery that you gave for the definition for each of these very important words. Like, you know, there are no, the whole imagery about either holding a... Uh, bird or a baby or a cell phone that was just really, really great. And especially I like the one about the Brahmastra. People oh. release the monsters they can't really track. That's <laughs> so good. Uh, unfortunately, that happens. It happens uh, all the time. Okay, so my question is this. Um, um, I've had the experience recently. I've told other devotees about this. I hope it's okay. But um, I... Uh, uh, 
have started to really conscientiously uh, try and chant in such a way that it's not offensive, at least it's on the clearing stage. And I found when I, I started doing that very conscientiously that just as Srila Prabhupada says, the bhakti yoga process is very, very easy. I, it was dramatic, and it was like that for some time. But then all of a sudden it was like withdrawn, and I found that I really had to beg for Krishna to protect me, at least against material desires, uh, material energy. Um, but as far as the struggle, the struggle is still there, whereas for some time it was like really, really easy. So my question is this, is that why is it that we find but you're a struggle. Uh, well, according to Vishwanath Chakravarti it's due to an artist. And that until we're free of at least 50% of our inartas, our progress is unsteady. Sometimes it's very easy, and sometimes it's a big struggle. So it only becomes... I mean, even at, like at Nishta, which where 50% of our inartas are gone... Uh, at Nishta and Ruchi even, Vishnachagavati Thakur says that the mind still has a tendency to be drawn towards material things. And only at a Shakti is it always easily and effortlessly drawn to Krishna. So I think some patience is required. And there's... Um, This is a phenomena that's described by spiritual practitioners in every discipline and every religion and every spiritual path. It's, it's a universal phenomena. That there's times where it's easy, there's times that it's moderate, there's times that it's hard. And eventually one gets to the point that it's always easy and eventually it becomes effortless. That's, that's a universal description. Okay, I have actually a meeting now, so I need to go. Thank you very much. Srila Prabhupada, Ki Jai. Hi, Hare Krishna.